Pushing Boundaries with TNA. I'm T. And I'm A. And tonight we're talking with, I'm excited about tonight. It's interesting. We're talking with Susan Kuczynska. She's the author of The Chemistry of Connection, How the Oxytocin Response Can Help You Find Trust, Intimacy, and Love, and also Oxytocin Parenting, From the Womb Through the Terrible Twos. And (laughs) um, you can find out more on her website, which is thechemistryofconnection.com. Or you can check her out on Twitter at Oxytocin Connect. So we found Susan at the Sexual Health Expo in L.A. And T, you saw her lecture. Yeah. And you were like tweeting up a storm with like everything she said. It was really interesting. It's really interesting. Really also validating of our sexuality in a way. Um, Oxytocin's this pretty cool... Chemical hormone. Yeah, but but it kind of... it, It contains all the amino acids that are good for us, you know, and, and it was, it's just fascinating. I mean, Susan will talk about it, but even I was fascinated by the way it, it induces birth. I mean, this is what they give women to cause the contractions to go into labor when there's, you know, when you want to, when it doesn't happen naturally. Right. But on top of that, and that like, yeah, I think oxytocin was originally found for that reason. And then, but you were like really excited about its health benefits and then how it is, it's called the cuddle hormone, right? Right. Because it induces this state of love and everyone can trace back the, you know, euphoric feeling of love and connection to this chemical. So Susan apparently has done a bunch of research in this field and this, her book is really interesting and we've got dog ears everywhere. Um, so check out her work and, um, and so we're going to talk with her about what oxytocin is, how it affects us, our lives, how we experience love and connection or sex and how we can improve it or change it or manipulate that. Yeah. Kind <laughs> so of make it work be for a, us. Yeah. To be aware of it. Right. For I sort sure. of, anytime I have one of those positive tingly feelings, I think, whoop, oxytocin being released. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole chemical. Yeah. Well, and I love, um, Susan's discussion also about early childhood and your right. connection with your mother and how much, oxytocin is playing a role in like breastfeeding and what's being released with with physical touch right um and how that influences our our development in our brains right yeah Um, it's all important so listeners if you think we're going soft on our shows this is (laughs) you know we talk about all things from all different angles and this is just as important as cunnilingus or giving a blowjob in your venture for love and happiness in life. Well, <laughs> how much oxytocin is released during the pleasures of cunnilingus? <laughs> exactly. Warm up those ladies. Get it's, those inhib- inhibitions down. So I yeah. There's fun little things that I, I noticed in just reading about it, which were um, like how, you know, it's supposed to bring oxytocin brings down your level of fear and your and increases your level of trust Mm -hmm. but that there are some studies that say it just increases all social emotions and so there is a hint that it also increases envy and then schadenfreude which kind of made me laugh (laughs) and wait well schadenfreude like the the, like basically the pleasure of seeing others suffer and um and then it made me think of like stand-up comedy and how I feel like stand-up comedy does a good bit of that right I mean you're laughing either at the suffering of this person or mocking others and then more more oxytocin is released, and then everyone's just laughing so more. I wondered; it made me a little nervous. About how much pleasure am I getting out of other suffering? Well, Susan I will don't. answer all of our questions. You don't. I don't only, get, only I occasionally. Never. Just occasionally. <laughs> 
All right, so let's uh, let's talk to Susan because I have questions. I don't know. I don't know if I have much else to say other than a lot of opinions. Yeah, exactly. I'd love to have her chime in, share, and find out more about our own development. Yeah, right. <laughs> what uh, are our issues and why? I Oxytocin. I need more. All right, Susan, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hi, welcome. Thank you. Um, so we we love your work. You we love your oh, book. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so how? First of all, I want to know how did you get going on this? Because okay. this isn't. So yeah. I work as a journalist, okay. and um, so my job is to like dig up information, find information, make connections, and stuff like that. And a few years ago. I had um, an assignment to write about brain scanning, and I got really interested in the brain. And somehow I stumbled on to oxytocin. And at that time, there were only animal studies, but it just explained so much about my own life. It was really this, aha, could this be true? And the more I looked at the research and the more human research came out, it's so true that oxytocin is kind of like the key to so many things that are confusing about being a person. And for me, as somebody who grew up having a really hard time connecting, it really explains so much about where that had come from and how it had changed. Mm, wow. So it, yeah. it's a passion for you now. And it, I'm sorry? It's totally a passion for you now. Yes, yes. Because it does explain so much, and it's, it's information that I think, honestly, everybody needs to know. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, how we connect is so at the base of our, like, how we live lives and our relationships and sex and all the, a lot of the problems and everything that we have. Um, can you tell us, so, so what does oxytocin do? Like, what is okay. the, what's, I mean, yeah, it affects us in so many different ways. Yeah. Which you talk yeah, about. Yeah, that's what's really interesting. It's like a wonder drug. It, um, it's a hormone. It goes to our bloodstream and it's responsible for um, regulating a lot of stuff, and it's sort of the anti-stress hormone. Mm -hmm. So cortisol, adrenaline, the fight-or-flight response, um, that's the stress response. Well, there's a parallel response, the common connection response, and oxytocin is a big part. Ideally, as we move through life, we got some challenges today. We got the cortisol going. Okay, now we need to relax a little, and the oxytocin comes up. And there should be kind of this natural flow between challenge and relaxation, cortisol and oxytocin. And oxytocin is important for rest. It improves healing. It makes us less sensitive to pain. It makes us less anxious. Like you said, it makes us less fearful. So it's really good for just chilling us out and making us feel better. But then it has a parallel, well, it is parallel function in the brain where it functions as a brain chemical or neurochemical. It, um, it's released into the brain in times of social interaction, and it's kind of a signal to the brain as well as the body that it can kind of relax. It doesn't need to be afraid. Um, so if you meet somebody, you're kind of assessing them, and if they seem like they're okay, your brain might release a little oxytocin. Um, if you know this person wasn't like them, your brain might release a lot of oxytocin. Um, you know, if you're cuddling or with somebody you love, your brain will release a lot of oxytocin into your brain and into your bloodstream. So that's why sex, love, and connection are connected to health and well-being. Well, and I, I immediately think, okay, well, which one's coming first, right? Uh, you know, when I read about oxytocin and reading your book, you know, all these studies that have someone, um, you know, inhale 
oxytocin and then look at pictures and they become more um, sympathetic and trust or more. You know, I immediately Mm -hmm. go, okay, so am I releasing oxytocin and that's making me trust someone that I shouldn't trust or, you know, like, yeah. And then, and then are there times that you, we through life have learned behavior, right? And so then maybe you're in general releasing less overall. And is that something that you can change? I mean, I know there's a yes, lot of yes, questions. Yes. Well, that's, but... <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a multi-part, very big question. But yes, 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 about. is the answer. <laughs> so um, so let's see, let me pick it apart. So is, um, if, you, if you inhale oxytocin or your brain releases it naturally, you will become less fearful. Um, and when, whether your brain is going to release oxytocin in response to, say, a stranger or somebody you're just meeting, is partly um, the result is a learned behavior, and that learning starts very, very early, maybe in the womb, definitely in the first three years of life. So it certainly is possible to trust somebody that we shouldn't trust. Um, you know, it happens all the time, unfortunately. Um, let's see, I'm picking apart that question. Right. Um, there was another part to it. Oh, just the idea of, um, I, I guess it's sort of which comes first, and, and if you're being... Uh, raised a certain way to maybe say not trust people, um, then you're mm-hmm. not releasing it. Then you don't have this more relaxed state of mind. I mean, I guess I'm just yeah. understanding what role it plays in our daily yeah. lives. Yeah. So I'm not sure about what you mean by what comes first, because you know our emotions are based on changes in our physiological state, and then our um, we we have a body response, and then our prefrontal cortex has a name for that. Um, just like stage fright, some people call it excitement because I'm going to be speaking. Some people call it fear, but it's the same feeling. So oxy, when our brains release oxytocin, it's in, it makes our bodies feel a certain way. Um, but guess... it is a learned response. It's kind of a habit of the brain. So it's certainly possible, in fact, I think it happens more and more, that if you're raised, if your mother is angry, if she's fearful, if she doesn't want to have a child, if she's not very loving herself, and this is how my mom was, then you're, you don't learn a really healthy oxytocin response. What's, um, I, I talk about what's supposed to happen, and what I mean by that is kind of like how we evolved in, in very, very ancient times, maybe before we even spoke. This is the same physiology that we're still using What's supposed to happen is the baby comes out of the womb, it crawls up onto the mother's belly and begins to suckle. This is Not all babies do this, but this is an innate response. So the mother's body already is full of oxytocin because oxytocin causes the contractions that push the baby out. And the baby's body is full of oxytocin because the baby was connected through the... um, the belly button thingy, <laughs> you know that thing. The umbilical cord <laughs> thing. <laughs> the umbilical cord, that use. thing. And um, so they're both kind of in a very physiologically oxytocin-rich environment. And the baby is nursing and the mother is feeling that. And the baby is already, his brain is being trained that connection and proximity to another person is a good thing. It's a source of food. It's a source of safety. It's a source of comfort. And we, in, in an ideal situation, a baby grows up like that and th- that doesn't get changed. And a child learns that other people are a source of warmth and comfort and pleasure. 
Um, if that doesn't happen, for example, like me, if you had a medical birth where they take you away from the mother and slap you and look at you and put drops in you and then swaddle you up, maybe you never felt that. Um, maybe when you got home, you didn't feel that, but maybe when you got home, your mother was very loving and nurturing, but maybe she wasn't. All this kind of influences how your brain is going to respond to social interactions of all kinds when you grow up. Right. And that's not to say that everybody who goes through that experience is going to necessarily come out like as a murderer or completely dissociated (laughs) from society. There are other ways we can learn this. And, and, you know, you talk about brain plasticity and all that kind of stuff. I'd like to get to this stuff a little bit later. um, Okay. I I jumped in. No, 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 no. It's (laughs) okay. But but I kind of want to like talk about all like a bunch of other stuff and then um, talk about how and why it's important. I mean, we can change it and we can like, we're not mm-hmm. just victims to the chemicals that are running through our body That's very important all yeah. the time. Okay. And, um, but I want like, so one, just to, to talk more about what oxytocin, how it affects our lives and why we care to talk about it. Um, you, I like the, the phrase you use, which is that we're wired for love. And that caught mm-hmm. me because it's kind of, I mean, it's very interesting, even what you talk about, like what, what you're talking about with the what should happen is that the child is born and crawls up and starts suckling and there's all this oxytocin present, which to me is like, wow, if oxytocin is the chemical that's telling you not to be afraid. And here, the first moments of life, there's, you know, all of these chemicals, the, the not afraid chemical, don't be afraid, it's okay, everything's great, connect, love, uh, you know, be with people, the world is lovely. <laughs> I think yeah. that's kind of profound and beautiful. Um, Can I say, and this is maybe yeah. the more scientific persuade, but I, yes. but I immediately think of social cohesion, right, and, yeah. and societies yes. yeah, and yeah. how we're going to be healthier as a whole if this process happens because right. we we need cohesion. We need people to bond and connect for groups to live together, for groups to, to work together, yeah, to yeah. and build things together. And to grow and, and to evolve and to, we yeah. can't just live on an island so but but yeah, I mean, we. So but can there be too much oxytocin? Because there are dangers in this world. Um, I don't know. I, I guess that maybe that's sort of where all those early questions were coming from. For me, I immediately kind of go, well, you know, can someone become sort of this nubile, you know, oh, flowing of oxytocin? Like everything's fine in this world, and can, then they just is, get chewed up. Right. I mean, is there ever too much <laughs> oxytocin? And then I think. Nah. <laughs> right. Well, nah. Can I answer that question? Because I have a really good analogy for that. Yeah. Um, you know, some parents think that they should be kind of tough on their kids because the world's going to be tough and they got to be tough to meet it. But think about if you were going to go on a long and arduous journey through the desert, what would you do to prepare? Would you like starve yourself and not drink a lot of water and really exhaust yourself to prepare for that hard journey? Or would you rest? Would you eat and drink as much as you possibly could so that you were very full and had more resources to meet the challenge? It's the same with love and trust and living in the world. Oxytocin is not going to make us, you know, too trusting, too gullible. It's just going to give us the resources to meet those challenges without just falling to pieces. Right. Yeah. And I was, and what came to my mind is I was reading something in your book and, and that's how I was seeing it was like, well, yes, if we, if we can prime our children to have the ability to respond, you know, to have oxytocin receptors and respond and deal with stress in a positive way where it doesn't, they don't get freaked out. But I don't think that means go and, 
I mean, I, I guess it's my question to you, perhaps, but um, it doesn't mean go and like keep your kid from ever experiencing any bad thing ever, you know, and picking them up every time they cry and, you know, every time they fall down or something is, I mean. Uh, that's two different questions. So should you pick up <laughs> really your kid every time they cry? I think yes. Okay. I think, well. especially when a baby, you know, some people think, oh, you should let the baby cry. And certainly to some extent, maybe you should. But I think in general, early on, if you do give your kid a lot of support and teach her that, yeah, you will be picked up. There is somebody there. I'm watching over you. Um, that just makes her more resilient and stronger. It doesn't make right. her too sensitive. Right. But for um, those moments down the road when she does fall yeah. and then she's already primed for you know what I mean? She's already like learned that, oh, everything feels, everything's going to be okay, so I'm okay, as opposed to... Mm -hmm. Well, there's a lot of research that shows that people who have that attitude do tend to do better and they have better outcomes in life. Right. Okay. Yeah. Great. It's the the resilience thing, the uh, learned happiness thing. Right. Ah. Yeah. I'm optimistic. Even when they're wrong, tend to be more successful and happier. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because they just sort of navigate. I mean, it does seem natural. You have less stress levels. I mean, I think about, um, I think I have lots of positivity in my life and and in some ways was loved and nurtured in one part of my life. And then another part, I think not enough. And then I also see those spike, like the areas in my life where I have spiked stress, where I don't handle situations, you know, and there's certain hot buttons, right, that make me hit the ceiling. And I, and I Mm -hmm. immediately think, yeah, you know, it, it runs a current through my life. And I've maybe over the years mitigated that behavioral pattern, but it's really hard to, um, completely eradicate and it does seem tied to yeah childhood experiences that that maybe taught you that it's not okay so you're hitting higher levels of stress right more cortisol Mm -hmm. all that well no you know nobody's life is going to be perfect every person is going to encounter stress and tragedy and anger um it's just you know how you deal with it um we're all going to get angry we're all going to blow our tops we're all going to be stressed out we're all going to say the wrong thing, but um, how we can bounce back from that is maybe the difference, and how we define that for ourselves. I like that, yeah, how, how, you back, how you're able to bounce back, and that does seem mm-hmm. tied to oxytocin, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, and people who, have, who are, are good at connecting, that's the primary way that you can bounce back. Oh, man, today was just horrible. I just really blew it. So you call your friend, you know, you go to your lover, you call your mom or your dad or whoever, and you get that support, and they help bring you down and cool you out and help you remind you that, you know, yeah, you blew it, but it's not, that, it's not the end of the world. <laughs> yeah, we're still here. And so can I ask you a question? So, Susan, we're talking about, like, is developing the oxytocin response in young children is this is primarily linked with physical handling of the kid or of a person, of a human? Is No, it's, it, that's a lot of it. Um, and feeding is a lot of it, too, because um, we all the receptors for brain chemicals in our brain, we have those same receptors in our gut. Mm-hmm. And the gut is linked to the brain by the vagus nerve, which is the primary pathway for oxytocin. Um, there was one study that showed that when they um, blocked the oxytocin in lambs, um, they didn't bond with their mothers. So feeding wow. is really important. And breastfeeding is ideal, but it doesn't have to be breastfeeding. It doesn't. Um, but huh. holding the baby while you're feeding it, um, looking into its eyes, 
eye gazing is another really, really important um, part of the bonding process and part of the building the oxytocin response and handling, you know, touching, holding, skin-to-skin contact, all that's really important too. Is there, uh, is there any research about eye gazing with uh, infants that are not biologically your own? Um, no, but there shouldn't be any difference. Really? Um, you know, natural childbirth is really great. It's not the only pathway to bonding and love. Um, and there's no evidence that adopted children don't have just as strong a bond with the people who care for them. Right. And in fact, you know, I, every child needs mothering, but it doesn't need to be the biological mother in order for that child to thrive. So um, all this will work just as well with an adopted child, with um, a child that you're just in the family of. Right. I think that really speaks to the neuroplasticity. We're going to go ahead and take Mm -hmm. a quick break, and then we'll come back talking with Susan Kuczynskis. We're going to talk about uh, if we're wired for love. We'll touch on that. Um, Why is it so damn hard? (laughs) To to love. (laughs) So you can tweet us at TA Sex Talk. You can check out Susan's work at chemistryofconnection.com and tweet her at Oxytocin Connect. We'll be right back. listening to Pushing Boundaries with TNA. I'm T. And I'm A. And tonight we're talking with Susan Kuczynskis, who's the author of The Chemistry of Connection, How the Oxytocin Response Can Help You Find Trust, Intimacy, and Love, and also Oxytocin Parenting from the Womb Through the Terrible Twos. So you can find her work on chemistryofconnection.com. Tweet her at Oxytocin Connect. Susan. Hi, Susan. (laughs) Hey. hey, so we've talked a lot about oxytocin, um, mm-hmm. the effects it, it has on us. And, and now I, I, I've touched on this before, but I, um, I want you to go more further, if you could, about what you mean when you say that we're wired for love. Um, I think that's a profound statement. It, it, it tickles me in a couple different areas. Um, but by that, do you mean connection? The, the connection that oxytocin, the, the, uh, I guess, creates in us? Yes, exactly. Um, when I say love, that's kind of a really big thing. We tend to focus very narrowly on certain parts of love, but love and connection can be as simple as I, one of you mentioned in, in the introduction, you know, just smiling at somebody, a stranger on the street, and feeling that tingle all the way up to, you know, you are the only person I ever want to love in my whole life, to, um, you know, to friendship to collegiality, even um, sports teams, 
or um, squads in the army. So we are wired for social connection of all kinds, and we're wired to be intimate. In fact, if we don't, if a baby does not have physical and emotional intimacy, it, it won't live. It's called failure to thrive. Mm-hmm. Um, our brain, so our brains support this. Our brains have a really, really large social centers, and um, there's a lot of oxytocin receptors in those um, social sec- sectors. It, but because the oxytocin response is a learned response, we don't all learn it the same way. Um, there's a lot of variation in um, how we actually do connect. We all have a born with the capacity to connect. Um, some of us end up with a lot less of a capacity to connect and be, feel intimacy and love than others. Maybe sort of as the years pass, is that uh, the idea? We, no, actually... Um, as, well, it, it depends a lot on what kind of a start we get. Um, the first three years of life, or the first three years the way we're mothered or nurtured and loved in a family or by you know one other person kind of determines a lot of the brain's response to oxytocin, how many oxytocin receptors you have, how active they are. There's also a small genetic component. Um, some people have a variation in the oxytocin receptor gene. The receptors are the things in your brain that take up a chemical. And some people um, have a variation that actually makes them a little warmer, a little more responsive to oxytocin. But the big thing seems to be that early experience. And because the first three years of life, we're not really able to form memories yet, this, what, what happens and why we are the way we are get, kind of gets hidden. So what happens is we sort of learn, quote-unquote, love from our mothers or the person who takes care of us, and we tend to kind of replicate that throughout our life. So there's a phenomenon where a woman will say, oh, he's just too, about a man who wants to date her. He's just too nice. Mm-hmm. Now, how could somebody be too nice? But in fact... If your mother was not very nice, if your mother was angry, you're not going to feel comfortable in a relationship unless there's a fair amount of anger because that's how, quote-unquote, love looks to you. That's wow. so sad. Yeah. Yes. I, mean, I, I know what I'm saying. If your mother was, um, sometimes she was really affectionate, other times she was really angry and you never knew, you are going to fall in love with people who are the same way. And because then you're like, why it, can't I just fall for somebody nice? I don't understand. Okay, well, mimicking. <laughs> but would you say that because it's mimicking the levels of oxytocin release? I mean, if it's directly tied to that, I'm sure there's other it, variables. It's, it's, more, it's a lot more complicated than that. Right. Um, yeah. I, I immediately thought, A, did you have something to... Well, I was just going to go into like my... my you know, I was going to try to say this later, but my initial thing is, well, we're not all screwed, so we can... You, I mean, we can learn through Adapt. like relationships and things that uh, that happen to us in life can teach us well, a different way of and maybe my enthusiasm relating, right? for your book, Susan, and and also your lecture or your your panel discussion um, at the Sex Health Expo was that for myself, um, I feel like I developed and grew and adapted. Um, this this ability, ability to, connect to connect more um, yeah in my childhood I had a more traumatic kind of separation from my mother living with my father these sorts of things not as much physical touch mm-hmm. in yeah. later life I think as a child I like as a as a young child I think I had more physical contact but then there was less and that caused 
more of a, a lot more anxiety around it. Um, and I've really come a long way since then. Uh, yeah, that's great. But given, given that conversation, we're talking about kind of the quote, the mother, as in the caretaker of the child, you know, it made me think about fathers and their roles and um, kind of a funny side article that I read. I thought of, you know, I, and I, it's been a while since I read it. So it was an African village, <laughs> uh, but, but where the fathers will take the children sometimes during the day and to, um, pacify the children, they actually let them suckle on their nipples. Wow, uh, interesting. That's yeah. So cool, isn't it? Yeah. So cool. And it immediately and, but it works, I guess. Right. Well, like, yeah. not yeah. that they're being fed, but like a pacifier. And right. it immediately mm-hmm. made me think of, you know, uh, in some of the reading I'd done also about oxytocin, it talks, you know, a lot about the release with breasts and kind of a, that you're seeing a larger amount of it in women. But I, I kind of feel like there must be an oxytocin flow with men when the nipple is suckled, like this kind of thing. I, I was wondering if you could comment a little on, on oxytocin in men. That, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a great question. I'm glad you brought it up. Of course, men actually have similar levels of oxytocin as women do because oxytocin does so many things in the body. Um, and our physiologies are really similar. What's different about men and women is the levels of testosterone versus estrogen. And estrogen seems to enhance the bonding effects of oxytocin, whereas testosterone seems to mute them. So Hmm. if you're talking about a love relationship, that can be why, you know, after sex, the woman feels so much more bonded than a man. Oftentimes, okay, here's where we have to make the disclaimer. Individuals are different. A lot of variation. Any one man or one woman can fall anywhere on the spectrum. In general, men tend to be less, responsive to the bonding effects of oxytocin, which certainly does not mean they don't bond. Men bond big time. Men also have another chemical called vasopressin, which is very similar but not identical to oxytocin. And vasopressin is um, more influenced by testosterone. Testosterone enhances the effects of vasopressin. And vasopressin gives a kind of a protective flavor to a man's bond. Um, in the prairie voles, which were the um, monogamous rodents that they uh, studied and where they learned a lot about oxytocin and what it does, which turns out to be pretty similar to what it does in humans, um, vasopressin will make um, the male guard the nest more. So men's bonding sometimes has kind of a different flavor um, than a woman's bonding, but Mm, men totally can bond. Um, We are cooperative breeders, and men are definitely influenced by oxytocin as well as women. And another study, a series of studies actually on African men, showed that um, men in long-term relationships had lower levels of testosterone. And we're not talking about, like, greatly lower levels. We're just talking about slightly lower levels. So that could kind of indicate that they could feel more bonded because their testosterone was a little lower. Interesting. Well, you bring up this goes to an interesting topic, which is monogamy, which, you know, this was one of the first things that popped into my mind when I was reading your research. I'm like, oh, is this going to be telling me that we're all supposed to be monogamous? Um, And I am I'm conflicted on this, honestly, because uh, I read a lot of research about everything and I'm torn. But what what is your. What what do you okay, think? So there's conflicting <laughs> research. Some people go, well, look at the bonobos. They have sex with everything that moves, and we're like the bonobos. But in fact, the bra- our brains, the patterns of oxytocin receptors in our brains are more like those of monogamous mammals. So 
one of the reasons we can't find love or we can't keep love is because we have this very narrow idea of what love between two romantic partners should be like. Mm-hmm. So we are de- I, I believe that the research shows that we are definitely monogamous animals. However, that is social monogamy. We are designed, we're wired, we're most comfortable when we live in a stable family unit. Um, that and rear, rear children cooperatively. But even among animals, this is what's really even interesting, even under monogamous animals, you think animals are just driven by instinct, um, quite a high percentage of them have what they call extra pair copulation. Within they the monogamous? With within the monogamous? People besides their mates. Okay. Wait, sorry. So, can you <laughs> say that again? Yeah, just so, of the... Can you hear me? Oh, yes. We can. So you're talking about within the monogamous animals, right? Yeah, even among monogamous mammals, they are still going to copulate um, outside the pair. They're just, but they're going to maintain that stable family. So it's it's likely that, and also, for example, in the monogamous prairie voles, um, a high percentage of the males, like maybe 15%, never do mate. And what they do is they go around and mate with other females when the males off getting food and stuff. So we probably are putting a little too much pressure on marriage. (laughs) We're probably putting a little too much pressure on marriage or, um, you know, long-term relationships if we are saying, well, never again sex with anybody else, ever. Uh, I think we just had an oxytocin release here in the studio. And and I were listening, we're like, yes, like, Like, that's what I felt. This is exactly what I want in life. I want my partner, but I just, you know, I want a little bit of freedom here and there. So, um, a freedom to explore that that sexuality. Yeah. And I, I totally agree with you, Susan, that, um, the problem is in the way that we perceive or understand love and that, that target that we, are I feel um, conditioned to go for and to want that doesn't necessarily yeah. fit what what and who we are as human beings and I think there's a conflict there and I think that's I'm wondering if that's yeah that's where I all these problems come in um, yeah and also I'm sorry can I just go yeah, on please. another thing is that we conflate sexual attraction and desire with quote-unquote love, um, the way our biology seem to be, again, quote-unquote, designed to work is that sexual attraction at first is really massive because if you think about in prehistoric times, it was like really dangerous to be around a stranger, right? You didn't know if they would eat you or kill you or rob you. Um, and so there had to be something to overcome that like fear of strangers. And so that was sexual desire. Now, sexual desire is not driven by oxytocin. It's driven by testosterone, along with norepinephrine and a couple others of the more excitatory chemicals. Hmm. So then when you have sex, orgasm releases a ton of oxytocin in both men and women. And in fact, oxytocin is involved in penile erection, and it's probably involved in clitoral engorgement too, although nobody studied that. So oxytocin is in there when you're starting, when you're attracted to somebody, when you have sex, there's a big release of oxytocin. Um, And then afterwards, there's this satiated period where you're all cuddly. But nature wanted us to keep copulating so that we could get pregnant and procreate and keep the species going. So sexual desire wells up again. We want to copulate. So that goes on for a while. But typically, after a couple years, those desire hormones naturally might kind of go down a little. 
um, especially if there's children, because think again in you know ancient times when things were really dangerous. Um, the couple needed to focus on rearing the child, keeping it safe, getting food, not on having sex all the time. So this was actually really adaptive for people, and we still kind of go through that. So what happens, you know, you meet somebody, you're so hot for him or her, oh, my God, it's so great, and maybe after a year or two you're like, well, I don't know. It's, you know, the fire is gone. I must not love you anymore. But no, it's just you're in a different phase of that love. Right. Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, that's the trend that I con- that I continue to see anyway. Oh, profound. It just makes me, you know, run through all my relationships, like the, the, know, the sexual partners. But then, you know, then the other thing is, what if, like me, for a lot of my life, you didn't really know how to connect beyond sex? You know, it's really easy to, you know, get hot and right. want somebody and have sex and have a hot relationship. But then when it dies down... If you're not able, if you haven't built that bond, then there isn't anything left, and you have to go on to another, you know, try with somebody else. Um, but if you are somebody who can connect and love in that more oxytocin-related way, then you're going to have a strong bond. Well, you know, it makes sense, actually, the science behind, um, uh, I guess, sex addiction or some variation of that, in that if you're getting a huge burst of oxytocin during orgasm, and if that's really the biggest source for you in your life based on how you were raised mm-hmm. or where you come from it makes sense that you would need it that you would need that and uh and and if you only were you know if you only orgasm with novelty or whatnot that you just keep running around and you're chasing the connection but it's just mm. being it's being put in a different area of life channeling it there yeah I, can can we talk about attachment mm-hmm. because i i worry um I mean, it's connection is is beautiful and wonderful, but attachment can I feel have a negative effect on us. Right, I, uh, that's where my mind went as well. Because yeah. I think, well, recently I would say I had a parting of ways with a, a long term partner as well, and then there's sexual exploration, but not necessarily. Anyway, it, the, but the idea, the, these questions coming in my head of am I, um, am I avoiding bonding or attachment because I moved into a new chapter of my life? Right. Uh, yeah. And then attachment can, um, I mean, there, I feel like there's healthy and habits. unhealthy attachment. Yeah. Right. And I know you speak to that in your book. So um, can you tell us your thoughts on that? So attachment happens through oxytocin. Um, we have sex with somebody or we cuddle with somebody or we laugh with somebody and it feels good. And oxytocin makes a little... Um, notch in our brain this person source of pleasure want to do that again so when we see that person again we feel a little oxytocin rush if we have a good time with that person again we that further kind of imprints that person in our minds we become attached to them it's not a bad thing it's certainly possible that when we lose somebody we're attached to and it's rather inevitable that we will one way or another it is painful it's part of life but um that feeling that we call attachment is is, is just a, a long ter- longer term connection and it's a really good thing now there are different when we talk different forms of attachment this um there um in child psychology they talk about three forms of styles of attachment um, and they're talking about the mother-baby bond specifically, but this style of attachment does carry on throughout our lives. There's the um, 
they're, they're firmly attached when you just feel really solid and connected and safe with your mom or whoever. There's the anxious form when sometimes your mother is there for you and sometimes she's not and you never know. And there's the uh, third kind, which my mind is blanking, but you guys read my book before I did. The anxious. Um, she said anxious. Oh, sorry, so. avoidance. <laughs> avoidance. So <laughs> that that's kind of how I was. Um, avoidant attachment, it's just too painful. You just don't want to, you know, either your mother is not there and she's never there for you, and you just, like, give up and say, I'm not even going to try because it hurts too much to be rejected, or she's there sometimes, but then sometimes she's angry and you just go, it hurts too much. I'm just not going to connect. I'm not going to let anybody in because it hurts too much. And we carry those styles of relating throughout our lives. So the healthy form of attachment is like people are generally good. Okay, maybe that went wrong or that person rejected me. But in general, people are good and they will like me. And that's the healthy style of attachment. I mean, you could call these oxytocin styles as well. Um, in the avoidant type, if you feel that oxytocin, you kind of shut down and go, uh-oh, I don't want to feel that danger, danger. It, um, the right. anxious Because it style, might be taken away from you. Yeah, yeah. We're going to take a mini break, and, uh, and I'm super interested in this, so we'll come back with it. We have to break? Okay. We do, don't we? Let's break. Yes, we're taking a mini break, and we're going to come back right on this topic because it's fascinating. Um, we're talking with Susan Kuczynskis, and uh, tweet us at TA Sex Talk. You're listening to Pushing Boundaries with TNA. You're the fear, I don't care, because I've never been so high. Follow me through the dark, let me take you past the satellites. Good evening. You are listening to Pushing Boundaries with TNA. I'm T. And I'm A. And tonight we're speaking with Susan Kuczynskis. We just took a mini break uh, and we were talking about really interesting ways of bonding with your mother and how that affects your whole life. We were talking about <laughs> attachment and uh, and we, we just talked about avoidant attachment and the, the oxytocin response uh, that creates avoidant attachment. So Susan, um, what about anxious attachment? What's going on with our oxytocin with that? Um, anxious attachment, that is when you just feel like you can never be sure of the person you love or the person you want to love you. So you, on the, so anxiety is kind of the opposite of common connection. Um, cortisol and norepinephrine are part of anxiety, They're, and oxytocin is not part of that. So you can be actually short-circuiting the opportunities for connection. You're so wow. anxious and uncertain that when connection is offered to you, you, you either don't notice it or you can't really just accept and enjoy it because you're just so worried it's going to go away all the time. 
Wow. It's exhausting. Uh, <laughs> is it, hey, are, you, are you experiencing what I am, which is, again, you're having these realizations, yes. making connections in certain patterns or behavioral I'm moments. Like, we're screwed. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, we're not. So let's get to the, okay, so, th- so this is how it can all go wrong um, and, and why it can be so hard. What about how, what, Just, what about how we, um, how can we make it better? Yeah, yeah. Well, we totally can. Um, this this happened in my own life. I, um, you know, had had very short relationships, always fraught relationships. Was pretty unhappy and lonely, and I took a really long break. And a lot of things changed for me, and I was able to fall in love and mate. And um, I wondered why that was, and that was like right around the time when I started researching oxytocin. So it turns out that. We, as you said, neuroplasticity, our brains can change. They do change throughout our lives, but they change in response to experience. And so, but that doesn't mean that if we just keep having the same failed relationships, eventually we're going to change our brains and connect. That's the problem. Um, The analogy I use is if you had a broken leg, and it was in a cast for a long time, and they took the cast off, and it's all kind of shriveled and weak and weird-looking, um, you, need to make, you need to change it. You need to make it strong. The way to do that is not to go out and run a race right away, um, but we do that with love. You know, I just had a miserable relationship. You know, I failed. It failed. Well, I'll just try again. That's not going to work. We need to kind of take a step back or, or quite a few steps back and practice connection at the level where we can handle it. So what we need to do is we need to build an experience of safe, pleasurable connection. And that may start like really, really, really like far back, like maybe not with a real relationship, you know, ongoing with a person. Um, Some things that can be really helpful is pet. Um, That really... That really helped me. Wow. Um, if, you, if, you like, if you like animals, it turns out that dogs um, release oxytocin. They respond to oxytocin. Dog owners and their dogs interact. They both release oxytocin. Um, caring for other people or things um, has been shown to release oxytocin. Um, group, group activities where you feel um, safe when you're in physical proximity can release oxytocin. For example, singing in a choir has been shown to raise oxytocin levels. So the idea is to find something that isn't too scary to start off with. Don't start off with, you know, okay, I'm just going to try to do better with you. Just very simple things that you can do to practice attachment and connection at a level that really feels good. And then you can kind of expand on that. Like maybe, you know, you've been singing in the choir for six months. You know, maybe you go to lunch with somebody in the choir um, you know, you have, you've been taking care of a dog for a year or more. Maybe um, you can start with a friendship or something with a human being. So, but kind of build that slowly and change the experiences to kind of wipe out those early bad experiences. So what exactly is going on, though? Is it that you're, you are putting yourself in situations where you're getting more frequent oxytocin bursts, or are you... Are you actually able to increase the number of receptors for oxytocin, or is that fixed after a certain number of years of child? Of, you know, no, the number and the placement of oxytocin receptors is not fixed. All oh, our receptors kind of uh, change throughout not only our lives but in response to experience. For example, a pregnant woman's 
receptors uh, for all kinds of things um, change kind of radically. Um, so um, it's, but it's not just like changing the level of oxytocin. I think it's more like a desensitization. Um, for example, I'm just thinking for myself, you know, when I started to feel oxytocin, I would get scared and I would back off because, uh-oh, trouble, I don't want to be hurt. Wow, um, so changing. being able to be in a situation where I could feel that and not get hurt and get used to that feeling. Um, so you actually are changing the pathways in your brain. So, you know, our brains have all these neurons in them, and they are connected, but they're not all connected to each other. They're connected in what they call pathways. So, um, and it's just like any a path in the woods. The more you use something, the, deep, the more you use the path, the wider and deeper and smoother it gets. The same way with your brain. The more you use those pathways in your brain, the stronger they get. So you can actually kind of like build those pathways to the social center of the brain. So you're actually changing your brain. Hmm. Right. The, that's, that's the definition of learning. Um, I have a yeah. question for you. Um, so is it possible... This may be a stupid question. <laughs> we love stupid questions. They always lead to more illumination. But I, but is it, I, I imagine, you know, someone going through a, a bad breakup and like we always, we say to ourselves, oh, I'll never love again or I'm ruined, right. I'm destroyed or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Is it possible mm-hmm. to go through an ex- a really painful experience like that and damage your ability to love or damage or connect, like have those receptors be destroyed or taken away or, you know, something you're chemically affected or, or is that Great just question. a mental illusion? I don't know. <laughs> I would guess. I don't know. I we remember need more research. Yet, but I would guess, I would say that probably it kind of depends on when in life that happens. If it happens when you're very young and your brain is still kind of connecting itself and is very, very plastic, maybe it would be more likely um, than if you have like or already have a really deep path to lunge, um, you know, a few rocks fall on it, but you can climb over them. Right. Yeah, and I, I liked your analogy as well of, of if something, w- if a broken bone had to be mended mm-hmm. and then it does need sort of this physical therapy to rebuild, yeah. maybe, you know, and, and of course not that research is a very similar analogy um, to to re- rebooting yourself yeah. and starting yeah. again, you know, yeah, and yeah. you've learned a number of things, so those don't all go away, but you right. do have to do Remember. some weightlifting, yeah, yeah. To, to get those muscles <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess what came to mind was the idea of trauma, and I guess what I was, what I was, what I just described is in essence a trauma, like uh, I think uh, tra- mm. the trauma response happens around um, a group, you know, a group of a neural cluster, basically, I, I, as far as I understand, and um, a pathway is blocked, like a, literally a pathway of neuronal process is blocked and so you need to learn a new way and basically grow a different neural pathway around mm-hmm. that traumatic event so I'm just I'm I don't know I guess I'm just discussing and it's all just very interesting to me but I, I never yeah. think we're lost causes <laughs> no no I thought it was I think, actually think, a fascinating question I think that oh, I'm sorry I think that you know it feels very traumatic when a love ends um true trauma definitely can quickly change the brain. I mean, we see that with PTSD. Mm. Um, probably, you know, a breakup, it, the brain doesn't really respond to as true trauma. 
Right. They're, right. they're such different they're, things. They're totally diff- traumatic. That, and they might also, they affect the brain differently, different sections of the brain. I mean, I have read that um, that breakups can cause a strong amount of depression, that kind of that, And I think we're talking mm-hmm. a little bit about, and maybe, maybe it's more better defined in what we're talking about now, which is less releasing of oxytocin. So then it feels like a depression or something. Right. Um, I'm not sure, but I, I kind of wanted to come back to that idea of just the ubiquity of oxytocin and how much it's influencing everything in our body. I mean, from Mm -hmm. milk release and breastfeeding to, um, well, actually it's vasopressin that maybe deals with urination or oxytocin. I mean, basically it's contractions, right? I mean, contracting and, um, releasing certain muscles, um, and allowing different flows. Yeah. And your stress and, um, so I feel like outside of love, it's affecting many everything. more things. Yeah, right. everything. I mean, we're talking about it like that, but but as you said earlier, Susan, just the social engagement, social connections. Well, yeah, you're right, T. And it does. It's kind of like, well, it, I think it shows you the the importance of connection. It's like, well, if we're wired to connect in love, um, and we have a develop and have a healthy connection mechanism going on in us, then look at all of the areas that in our life that it can affect positively or negatively, including our health. Mm-hmm. I think it's fascinating. Um, you mentioned something in your book about girls. Uh, you call you touch sensitive in an oversexed world. And I think that's really fascinating. It's something I wanted to touch on because T and I are sort of passionate about the, the young ones and getting at them early <laughs> so that yeah, they, sex they education. don't have as many hurdles to jump through as we did. So, and yeah. I also agree this, we are in a very oversexed world where, you, you know, there's stimulation and, and pressure well, to be sexual earlier. But oversexed. Is that a good thing? Sorry, I want to articulate oversexed in, in media, which brings that, you know, we did a show about exactly. do communists have better sex? And it was a very right. funny thing about Eastern Germany versus Western when the Berlin Wall came down. And, um, but yes, our consumption of how sex, you know, whatever sex in, in a, Anyway, yes. Informative <laughs> sex. I mean, girls are sex, given, yes. and boys are given very little information about how, what sexual pleasure is, how to pleasure right. themselves, how to ask for pleasure, how to expect actual true sexual pleasure, the physiological pleasure. And then they're given a lot of visual information about how, how sex should look, you know, how sexy women should act. That has nothing to do with the sensation in your body. Right. right. I mean, really, if you yeah. look, if you look at it, the way we're taught, uh, you know, in when we're young is, I mean, we do live in a very individualistic society, and we're taught to be our own unit, and touch isn't really okay. You know, I mean, even hugs. We're not a very huggy. I'll say, I so culture, my I feel I come from a Latin American background, and actually, one side, my mother is Latin American, my father is American, and I definitely, with the two families, see an extreme difference. And I notice even with friends, things like staying in someone's home, uh, these mm-hmm. ideas of you know, a parent visits, they stay in a hotel, <laughs> very, very different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it seems right. to be a very yeah. American way, um, and there is much more affection in the Latin American side. Physical, family. Yeah, physical, and yeah, on all fronts. Um, interesting. Yeah, and it's did so, we answer? Wait, I well, think Susan I guess, was still talking about young oh, sorry. women. No, did you? I don't. I feel like I jumped in about the consumption of sex and the way it's portrayed in media, and then we, and then again, then we moved away from this thing, this uh, tagline touch about sensitive touch sensitive in an oversexed world. Yeah, I, yeah. Go ahead. 
(laughs) (laughs) Exactly. You know, we crave touch, and as we reach puberty, you know, we crave sexual touch as well, and we get these double messages, no, don't do it. Um, at the same, but you should twerk and you should wiggle around and you exactly. should show your cleavage and show your butt. But um, g- girls are, so they're kind of in this double bind because they want and crave gentle, loving, sexual touch, and there's no information about how to get that. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the frustrating part is, as I'm seeing this double, this double message. And uh, what do you, I don't know, what could we do, is, what can we do about that? Just teach our kids. Read Susan's book. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, it maybe comes down, it comes back to the family, I think. If um, a girl gets a lot of, when a boy too gets a lot of loving, um, safe touch, she will understand how that feels. And she will, between um, somebody touching her because he cares about her and wants to pleasure her versus somebody touching her because he wants to get himself off. I think so that provide, can provide kind of like a good baseline of what we're looking for. Right. Yeah, nicely said. I, uh, I totally agree with that. Uh, well, this has been extremely mm-hmm. enlightening. Oh, you know what? I wanted to touch on one just earlier in the conversation. You mentioned vasopressin in men. To clarify, mm-hmm. it's also, it is a hormone also found in women, correct? Right. Right. Absolutely, it- yeah. We all have the same stuff in there. There's actually very little differences, but um, vasopressin seems to be more connected to male bonding right. than it is for women. And a little bit, maybe I'm getting too liberal with my analogies, but I, I did find it interesting that vasopressin does deal with retention of water, blood vessel constriction, this kind of thing. Um, and then I also read contractibility, it, that, that it deals with contractibility that facilitates like sperm and egg transport. But I, so this detail made me think of the way you were talking about vasopressin in men, Susan. Um, I don't know, blood vessel constriction. It made me think of them protecting the nest, that there is this, you know, that it's... Symbolic. <laughs> yes, well, or in a, in a cellular level, you know, it's... Interesting. Uh-huh. Uh, the reaction is to constrict or protect or, you know, that there's more of a tension in it uh-huh. than... Interesting. I have Then a relaxation, right? Whereas oxytocin is the release and then yeah. also with birth, the expansion yeah. to allow uh-huh. the child through. And Very so interesting. I'm just having me. this breakthrough. <laughs> <laughs> but, but this also makes me think of even the anatomy of arousal for women, you know, releasing so much liquid and fluid and kind of, you know, water based. Opening to receive. Right. And yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's on every level. <laughs> Neat analogy. Well, Susan, we really I'm love your work. Patrick. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, your second book, Oxytocin, um, sorry, Oxytocin and Parenting from the Womb to the Terrible Twos is a whole separate topic. So, uh, and I encourage everybody to go and, uh, go to your website, which is, uh, I'm sorry, I'm missing the mic, which is chemistryconnection.com. Perfect. And you can tweet her at Oxytocin Connect. And yeah. uh, we're out Thank of time. Thank you. Yeah, Thanks we've been listening. talking with Susan Kuczynskis mm-hmm. of the book, The Chemistry of Connection. Uh, tweet us at TA Sex Talk. You're listening to Pushing Boundaries with TNA. I'm T. And I'm A. Good night. Good night.